Now, the first lecture is about uh, the church in Scotland in the early 16th century. We are looking here at the Church of Rome as it was in Scotland in the period just before the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation came to fruition with a parliament in 1560. And so we're looking at the period uh, earlier in that century before 1560. Now, in some of the subsequent lectures, we're going to be considering uh, the critique that was made by Protestant preachers of the theology and worship in the Church of Rome. And indeed, those are, of course, the core issues in the Reformation. But in this particular lecture, uh, I'm going to direct our attention to uh, two other aspects of the situation. Uh, we're going to look, first of all, at the financial administration in the church before the Protestant Reformation. And we're also going to look at the efforts at reform from within the Church of Rome before the Protestant Reformation. Now, we might well wonder why would we uh, give attention particularly to the financial administration in the Church of Rome in Scotland uh, before the Reformation. And the reason is because uh, uh, money, wealth, and finance bulked so large in the life of the church. It was a dominant uh, aspect of the church as uh, it functioned in Scottish society before the Reformation. The medieval church of Rome in Scotland was the largest owner of property in the nation. And when you compare the annual income that the monarch had uh, from all the lands that he possessed, it was something uh, quite inferior to the uh, annual income that was received by the Church of Rome not from offerings, but from, from the agricultural tithes that were uh, collected from the people in the parish and from the rental of its extensive property holdings so that the annual income of the church was something like 15 to 20 times as great as that of the monarch. And the monarch, of course, was at the uh, height of the social structure in the, in the nation. So this gives some sense of uh, the, uh, um, the position that the, the Church of Rome had uh, dominating the economic uh, uh, situation of the nation uh, at that uh, time. Now, because the Church of Rome had such wealth, uh, the eyes of many people in, uh, in Scotland were turned upon the church as a source of revenue for themselves. And so the church began to be looked at as a bank that the people could go to and get money out of it for themselves, for their own uh, uh, prosperity and, and income. And you can imagine then uh, when... Um, when the people in Scotland at the time of the Reformation looked at the church as they had always known it and then compared that with the Protestant preachers who began to come among them, they saw a striking uh, difference. Here were clergy, both 
the parish clergy and the higher clergy, the bishops and, and uh, abbots and priors of monasteries who uh, were bent upon accumulating to themselves as much as they, they could uh, uh, in the way of financial uh, revenue, but by comparison, the Protestant preachers were coming and ready to lay down their lives uh, to be burned uh, for the preaching of the gospel. And uh, in all of that, of course, there is an indication of the, the moral character of the church and its clergy uh, acting in this um, uh, avaricious self-interest uh, that uh, is a, a striking uh, background for the onset of the Protestant Reformation. And also, uh, it's useful for us to consider these uh, matters of financial administration uh, for your help in understanding uh, Scottish Presbyterian church history more widely. Because uh, at the Reformation, these problems were tackled, but the, uh, the Reformed Church was not successful in resolving these uh, financial uh, problems that uh, were the legacy from the system that had been built up uh, in the medieval church. And so when the, at the Reformation, the Reformed ministers sought uh, to have a, a thoroughgoing reform of the financial administration of the church. Uh, the, uh, there was resistance from many elements in society that did not want to lose the ready source of, of revenue which they had been deriving from the medieval church. And so the reformers found a great deal of frustration in in, uh, in seeking to address these questions. And, uh, and as we will see again and again in our lectures, that there, there, was, uh, um, there, were, there was repeated conflict between the church and many vested interests in society trying to find a way that the Reformed ministry could have a basic level of support. But... This was true not only during the period of covered by these lectures down to 1600, but it remained true for 300 years after the Reformation. The Scottish Reformed Church, for all of the purity and doctrine and worship that it, it uh, achieved, uh, still was perplexed and, 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 and unsettled by these, uh, this legacy uh, from the financial administration uh, that had been put in place in the medieval pre-Reformation church. And so if you come in Scottish Presbyterian history down to 1733 and the secession from the national church, the national Presbyterian church, the secession involving men like Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine or James Fisher, these men uh, were leaving the Church of Scotland and one re primary reason was because of the system of patronage in which uh, there were uh, uh, fixed uh, revenue income uh, for, uh, for parish ministers and it was all bound up with, with uh, a patronage in which uh, some, uh, some uh, local aristocrat uh, 
or, or some institution in society could appoint the minister rather than the minister being elected uh, biblically by the congregation. And so uh, you can come on then to 1843 in the origin of the Free Church of Scotland under the leadership of men like Thomas Chalmers and William Cunningham. And again, it's this question of patronage and the, and the, the, the rights of patrons to determine the ministers and all of this because they're, they're, they haven't been able to break loose from the system of financial administration and income and revenue that was established in the medieval church. So for your wider understanding of Scottish Presbyterianism. And then also, finally, for your own preparation for the work of the ministry. Because uh, as pastors of congregations and, and laboring in church courts and um, presbyteries or uh, classes or uh, 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 working with deacons uh, in the finances of a congregation, there are going to be uh, important questions that arise for you and it is well for you to think through uh, questions of, of the place of finance and money in the life of the church and what uh, contentions can arise over uh, the distribution of money and finance and how it can cause unrest and how it can cause, cause problems that once... Uh, uh, a bad financial system is put into operation. It can can bring uh, 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 injury and harm even for generations to come in the life of, of a church. These are matters to be carefully pondered. Now, as we look at the uh, financial administration of the Church of Rome in this pre-Reformation period, uh, we should start with the tithes. Uh, the parish ministers, and uh, Scotland was divided into about 1,100 parishes, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the parish, each parish had a priest called a parson or a rector, and uh, the parish priest was to be supported by tithes that were paid um, uh, from uh, agricultural produce, animal produce, or the... Uh, the uh, crops from the field. And of course, originally this was a proportionate rate, uh, like a, a tenth, uh, and uh, this, uh, this income would be used theoretically to support, uh, to give a stipend and uh, an income to the parish priest and also for the maintenance of the church building and also for poor relief in the, in the parish for the care of the poor. But... Uh, there was considerable resentment at the payment of this tithe, and uh, there was a good deal of litigation to try to, to uh, secure payment, and uh, it came to be that there was a negotiation so that instead of having a proportionate rate that would increase as, as uh, uh, there, there would be greater prosperity enjoyed in the parish, there was instead a fixed payment that was settled upon. And, uh, and uh, uh, of course, what is happening here is that people are looking after uh, their own interest and, uh, and uh, there is uh, not the, uh, uh, the sacrificial uh, desire for uh, the uh, support of the, the parish ministry. But 
this is only the beginning of the self-interest that's displayed. Uh, a practice developed called impropriation. Impropriation. Uh, spelled I-M-P-R-O-P-R-I-A-T-I-O-N. Impropriation. And this is a, a practice that had begun about, um, uh, about 400 years before the Reformation. And the idea was that uh, some other institution within the church, such as a cathedral or a monastic house, could gain the right to the, the, uh, the, the tithes that were coming in to a particular parish. This institution would have then the right of patronage to appoint who the priest would be in that parish. And at the same time, all the revenue that was uh, theoretically for the support of the parish priest would instead go to this other institution. The institution would give only a very small part of it for the, pay, for the support of the parish priest. And the result is that the cathedrals and the monastic houses and the universities that engaged in this practice would, became more and more wealthy. So you had a part of the religious system that was very wealthy, uh, the bishops, the abbots and priors heading monastic houses and so on. Uh, these uh, were wealthy situations, but uh, the parish was being drained of its income. These uh, tithes uh, you'll find referred to in the literature as tines. It's a Scottish word. It's a Scots word. Uh, tined is spelled T-E-I. Nd and the tithe is the agricultural tithe. Well, these tithes now are being um, uh, diverted to the the other institutions in the in the church, and and local ministry to people is being is uh, is, is being uh, impoverished because not only did you have have uh, uh, only a fraction going to the support of the theoretical parish priest, but the parish priest uh, holding the revenue that would come to him would appoint someone else to serve in his place, and that was called the vicar. So the rector or parson would appoint a substitute, a vicar, and he would labor at a fraction of what the parson had gotten, and, and then often even the vicar would not reside in the parish and would not carry out any ministry there, but would appoint someone subcontracted under him, the curate, who would have the actual cure of the souls, would actually be engaged in the, the saying masses and, and the, the, the ministry to the people in the local uh, parish. And all of this, of course, uh, uh, means that, the, that the, um, the bulk of the revenues are not supporting the person who is laboring in the parish. The person laboring in the parish then is is likely to be uh, the least well-educated. He's going to be certainly one of the poorest paid uh, among the clergy. And uh, and he's going to be someone often that will be illiterate or certainly will know very little Latin, which is the language in which the services are being uh, conducted. And uh, so the people can readily look at the, at the system and see that they're not getting very much for these uh, ties that they're paying for, from their labor uh, on the field. And 
by the time of the Reformation, uh, there were uh, 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 the largest proportion of the parishes and of the 1,100 parishes in Scotland were impropriate. They were they were controlled and their revenue diverted to one of these other institutions. 85% of the parishes uh, had this diversion of their funds to other uh, institutions. Then uh, a further uh, uh, diversion of funds from any kind of ministry to, to uh, the people of Scotland uh, came through the establishment of what were called collegiate churches. And the collegiate churches were founded uh, by uh, some private person uh, for the sake of his own, himself and his own family. And, and uh, there were 40 of these that were founded in the century before the Reformation in Scotland. And, and, uh, and uh, they became the most popular way in which wealthy donors would, uh, would give an endowment to the church in Scotland. And so there would be these private chapels that would be uh, often quite magnificent structures they were well endowed, and the the the, pay, the founder would have the right to appoint priests to serve in those particular um, uh, collegiate churches. And these uh, chapels, these private chapels, were really not even for ministry to the living; they were they were uh, for saying masses on behalf of the dead. And the idea is that the the, the wealthy donor would establish this chapel and appoint uh, priest who would say masses there f- uh, for for his soul and for the souls of of his uh, family members. And so, uh, while uh, the uh, the the local parish ministry was in, in, in dire straits uh, for support, the 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 uh, popular endowments were going to these collegiate churches, and the collegiate churches were engaged in the in the the um, the uh, process of impropriation to gain the rights over tithes from other parishes. A further problem that developed was with respect uh, to uh, the appointment of commendators, commendators. And uh, these were um, uh, persons who would head monastic houses. Um, the, ma- the monasteries in Scotland uh, were were very much on the decline by the time of the Reformation. In fact, they were they were so little threat to the Reformation that in Scotland, uh, after the uh, Reformed Church was established, the monasteries were simply left to fade away. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, a, a monastic house was considered to be quite flourishing if it had twenty monks. And and uh, and in the in the um, um, uh, the uh, hundred years before the uh, the Reformation, it became very uncommon for the head of the monastery to be a member of the monastic order. He would instead be what w- w- was called a secular clergy, and the secular clergy were those clergy who were those priests who were not members of of one of the monastic orders. They they didn't live according to the monastic rules. And uh, and and it went further than that. Uh, by the time of the Reformation, it had become uh, common. Indeed, it was the case with with the the bulk of the monastic houses that uh, 
that, uh, that laymen were appointed to head the monastic house. And the, the, the monastery was committed to them in commendam, the, and they were called commendators. And, and uh, the idea was that then as the head of the monastic house, they would have the administrative responsibilities for the monastery. And the monasteries had become some of the largest land uh, holders in, uh, the, the, uh, in, in the religious system in Scotland. So, so they, were, um, they were a prize that, was, uh, that, 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 that people uh, uh, came to, to readily prey upon. Uh, they looked at the monasteries as large land-holding corporations. And if they could... If, uh, if uh, uh, for example, some noble family of much influence in the area could get a member of their household appointed as the head of that monastic house, then he would have uh, the position by which he could bring many of the lands of the monastery under the control and power of that noble family. This was done by leasing the land. And in Scotland, there is a device called the FEU, F-E-U. And the FEU is, a, is a, um, a permanent lease. Instead of buying the land outright, uh, someone would obtain permanent control over the land by the payment annually in perpetuity of a few duty. And so for some relatively nominal some paid every year. Uh, some um, uh, family could obtain uh, vast uh, ex- uh, uh, um, estates of land. And often when they fell into the hands of these noble families, the, uh, the nobility would evict all the people who were tenants on the land. And uh, you can imagine the, that the people being evicted looked at what was happening in the financial administration of their church. And they would say, look, we're losing our place on the land because, uh, because the church has put uh, the, this, this monastic house in the hands of someone who is really pillaging the church for, for their, uh, their own private interest. And... Uh, so we have, for example, uh, the King of Scotland and uh, James V uh, in the 1530s. He's a young man, and he writes to the Pope, and he explains that he's had several illegitimate sons, and he's asking for a special dispensation that they can be named uh, to, to privileges in the church. And several of his sons become uh, the, uh, the abbots or priors or, or given a commendatorship over, over the, the largest and wealthiest monastic houses in Scotland. And, of course, uh, these uh, sons, uh, when they're appointed, uh, uh, they often being underage, uh, the revenues are going directly up to, the, to their father, to the crown. So this is merely a device by which the crown can, can be draining the church of, of much of its uh, revenue. And uh, 
while the parish uh, clergy are uh, are often uh, the 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 least educated uh, of the clergy, there are a great number of clergy actually in the country. Uh, a very high proportion of the population of Scotland is clergy, but the problem is has been that there are not many salaried positions in the country. There are few landowners in Scotland. Uh, the, the monarch and the nobility and uh, the local gentry or the social elite, and they own land and the church owns land, but most of the people are tenants on the land, and, and, uh, and even the monarch does not have the resources for paying salaries to civil servants. So how will the civil servants be paid? And how will lawyers be paid? And how will diplomats be, ser- be paid? And what about notaries who, who draw up legal documents? Well, these people are the clergy. And they receive some uh, position in the church by which they get some revenue. And then they execute these secular duties, but they do so by reason of having been appointed. So, for example... Someone might be appointed the parson of such and such a parish. He appoints a vicar to serve in his place, but the bulk of the revenue of the parish is going to the parson. The parson then becomes parson of two or three parishes. So he has the accumulated income from several different uh, uh, parishes. He then serves as a civil servant uh, with the king. Uh, if If he's favored by the king... The king will get will see that he gets other appointments as well, and and so it is that they find a way to to use the church as a source of income and stipend for many members of the society and those who are the best educated and those who who are ambitious they go on to teach in the university or or to uh, to practice law or uh, to work in the civil service and. And, uh, and the, the parish um, uh, ministry is left to those who, who uh, are the least able. So, in sum, the situation with the financial administration in uh, the church is that the structure is quite top-heavy. There are few uh, uh, institutions at the top, the cathedrals, the bishops, and the abbots, and so on, and uh, and they are quite wealthy, but but then then the there is impoverishment at the level of the parish uh, uh, clergy. Now, going along with this it, are all of the efforts that are made by the the secular um, uh, powers to to make the most of of uh, of the church as a, a source of revenue. And, and so to try to control politically what is going on inside the church. In Scottish society, you have the monarch, and then beneath him you have the nobility. These are the men with titles, uh, dukes, earls, and lords. And uh, there are about 50 or 60 of these nobility in Scotland. They're going to play a very important role in the, in the Protestant Reformation. And then below them, you have uh, the gentry. And these are um, uh, usually referred to in Scotland as the barons or the lairds. Uh, laird is a Scottish word. 
L-A-I-R-D, Laird. And uh, the barons or Lairds are um, um, local large land uh, holders in a district, and they have a very considerable um, social uh, influence in, in, uh, in the area where they hold land. Indeed, the nobility have um, uh, delegated to them many of the uh, responsibilities for the administration of government. The whole justice system is in the hands of the nobility rather than the crown. The, the, and the local uh, gentry are, um, are, are often um, <coughs> the, um, the heads of, of, um, of a, a large family circle or maybe, maybe um, uh, an extended family um, uh, will, 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 uh, uh, will look up to uh, some local laird as, uh, as the one who will uh, give direction to the life of uh, society in that area. These local lairds could become protectors of Protestant preachers, and uh, they also played a very important role in, in the movement to the Protestant uh, uh, Reformation. But before the Reformation, uh, all of these elements in, in society are looking for how they can, they can, um, they can uh, enhance their position politically and financially, uh, taking advantage of, of, of the church. And the power of the Pope was uh, on, on decline in a considerable degree in Scotland. Uh, one of the major um, um, uh, 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 powers of the Pope in the period right before the Reformation in Scotland was as a legal authority because um, with, with this system of uh, stipend and income, uh, there would often be confirmation or appointment to positions by the Pope. And so there was a great deal of traffic of people going to Rome to, to get authorization or confirmation for holding a, one of these positions. These positions, by the way, were called benefices, benefices, B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E. And a benefice is a stipend or an income that's attached to some position in the church. So um, uh, one benefice would be uh, a bishopric uh, with all the wealth attached to that. Another would be a, 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 uh, the, 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 the parish parson. And, uh, and uh, what was happening in the hundred years before the Reformation is that the king in Scotland was uh, uh, pressing the pope that the monarch could have more and more power for uh, appointments to bishoprics in Scotland and to other positions in the in the church, such as um, heads of monastic uh, houses and, and the like. And uh, and uh, the 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 king, of course, was also looking at these powerful social figures, these the higher clergy, the bishops and priors and such like, and and uh, wanting to have men who would favor his social and political policies in the country. And so um, uh, if, uh, if, uh, if, if the king could appoint his own uh, favorites and often members of the nobility and people who then would feel obligated to him or people whom he wanted to reward for favors that they had done to him, uh, then 
then he would have these appointments uh, 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 that he could make. Uh, now let's look uh, secondly and, uh, and briefly at uh, the other thing we wanted to consider in this lecture, and that is the effort at reform from within the church prior to the Protestant uh, Reformation. Do we need to change the tape here? We've been going about an hour. Uh, well, I'll, I can go on with the, with the lecture for about uh, 10 more minutes. Is that all right for your taping? That's fine. All right. Then uh, to look at the effort at reform from within the Church of Rome prior to the, Scottish, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Church of Rome as it saw uh, Protestantism beginning to emerge in Scotland in the 1520s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, was aware that it was being challenged. And there were the persecutions for heresy, but uh, there was uh, a widespread dissatisfaction in the society with the church, even by people who not were not at first... Uh, uh, persuaded of the Protestant opinions, yet they saw the corruption, the venality, the avarice in the, the church. And so there were a series of councils that were, church councils that were held in Scotland, uh, at an, to make an effort at reform. And these, there were three, uh, that were held in 1549, 1552, and 1559. And, uh, this was the period when the Council of Trent was meeting. Uh, Trent opened in 1547 and, of course, went on through with sessions through uh, uh, a long period of time. And, uh, and some of the, uh, the impetus for these reforming councils in Scotland was taken from the example of what was being done at the Council of Trent, though largely... What was uh, addressed in the in the church councils in Scotland were not matters of doctrine, and and uh, the this effort at reform from within the church was quite ineffectual, and uh, and altogether failed to to prevent the the Protestant takeover of the country. Uh, the uh, councils uh, uh, sought to uh, address such matters as uh, the practice of priests having concubines. Uh, it was very common for the parish priest to have a housekeeper uh, who lived with him, and they had children, and the children are there in the parish, and everyone knew what was going on. And, uh, and likewise, uh, the bishops and the, the priors of abbeys, they, they had their mistresses, and everyone uh, knew all about it. And they had their illegitimate children, and... Uh, the legitimation of of um, of children uh, of uh, of priest was uh, much higher than the uh, legitimation of offspring of others in in the society, and and these councils sought to address this kind of problem, and uh, it was observed even by um, ardent visitors um, to Scotland, uh, ardent uh, Romanists visiting Scotland, uh, Jesuit uh, envoys. Uh, that the, that there was a, uh, a lewdness in the lives of the clergy that was a disgrace to the church. Uh, 
so the council would issue these the councils would issue these these exhortations that things should change and things didn't change uh, there was a desire uh, expressed by the councils to have uh, more instruction of uh, the clergy and of the population and so there were to be theologians giving lectures uh, to give uh, better indoctrination of the parish clergy um, uh, and uh, and uh, the bishops were exhorted to begin preaching. They were to preach four times a year. And uh, the vicars in the parishes were to preach every Sunday and on major feast days. Um, and, uh, and further in this effort to, to bring a better understanding of the, of the, um, the Roman faith, uh, the council in 1552 um, uh, uh, called for the publication of a catechism, and it's known as our, uh, uh, Hamilton's Catechism. Uh, John Hamilton was the Archbishop of uh, St. Andrews in Scotland, and, uh, and uh, uh, the catechism was actually written uh, by um, uh, a Dominican uh, friar who had... Uh, fled from England where the Reformation had been established, who had come to Scotland, and, uh, and uh, his name is Richard Marshall. And, uh, and uh, Marshall's book is uh, a long exposition of the doctrines of the faith, and it was uh, written in, in, uh, uh, in Scots, and it was to be read in the parishes, and uh, the clergy were also to learn from it. Um, uh, but... Uh, uh, it's a measure of the ineffectual steps that were being taken by the Church of Rome that this book, uh, instead of giving sharp definitions of where Romanism differs from Protestantism, it, it gave very mild and accommodating statements about the faith. And so, for example, it makes no mention of the papacy. Uh, it, it, it has a very... Um, um, uh, 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 shallow uh, definition of justification. Uh, at the Council of Trent, uh, there had already been uh, sessions that were devoted to defining the doctrine of justification as over against Lutheranism. And, uh, of course, in the, in the period uh, before Trent, there had at first in the Church of Rome been some attempts at finding some kind of accommodation with Lutheranism the Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone, some kind of uh, halfway house. But all of those uh, attempts at accommodation were ruled out in the Church of Rome by the positions taken by the Council of, of Trent. But this, this work, um, Hamilton's Catechism, uh, didn't reflect uh, that sharpened definition of uh, justification. It, 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 it would almost seem as if... Uh, uh, the uh, the intention is to have such a mild statement that uh, that uh, people would not feel uh, compelled to rebel against the the, the Roman Church, and likewise uh, the Hamilton's Catechism says very little about the Mass as a sacrifice, and uh, and uh, and so uh, the the uh, the Catechism was was. Uh, Indeed, uh, um, 
like the rest of the efforts of the of the councils um, uh, 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 a very little uh, help in in uh, in altering the situation. The councils would would uh, ask for things like clerics to wear their clerical dress. They would ask for the church buildings to be repaired. They would call for an end to pluralism in which a person had had responsibility for several different parishes but didn't reside in any of them. And, and, uh, but these sorts of things uh, were not able to address the, uh, the, the revolution in doctrine and worship that the Protestant preachers were calling for. There was also a serious lack of theologians of, of stature to address the situation. The last major theologian, uh, Roman theologian in Scotland was John Mayer, M-A-I-R, or John Major, as he's also known. And he had um, had a distinguishing career teaching at the Sorbonne in Paris. And he was a Scotsman, but he had, spent, he had taught at Paris, and he had taught also at the universities of Glasgow and St. Andrews in Scotland. And, uh, uh, but he died in 1550. Um, Melanchthon had ridiculed his his uh, very conservative uh, mayor's very conservative defenses of Roman uh, soteriology, uh, so there was no major figure. The, the, uh, amazingly, with the with the Reformation Parliament coming in 1560, the 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 first systematic effort to to give an answer to the Protestant doctrine. Uh, in a published form, came in 1558, two years before the Reformation, from one Quentin Kennedy, who was an abbot in, in Ayrshire. Uh, another uh, call for reform that uh, also did not go uh, so far as to, to uh, secure the, uh, the um, uh, reform that was needed to stop the Reformation was made by a poet, uh, Sir David Lindsay of the Mount. And uh, he was a favorite of the king. He, he was under the patronage of the king. And uh, uh, he wrote uh, morality plays and uh, poems in the form of political satire. Uh, for example, his satire of the three estates in 1540. And he would ridicule the uh, plurality, the pluralism, the holding of many... Uh, positions by the clergy, uh, their illiteracy, their lack of chastity, the failure of the friars who were commissioned to preach to go out and do this preaching, um, the the wealth of the bishops, the the um, uh, the, uh, the 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 general use of the church as a source of of revenue. Now, Lindsay was not a Protestant. Uh, he did not embrace the Protestant. Uh, view of justification, um, but uh, his 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 plays and poems uh, were calling for the church uh, to be reformed, and yet uh, without uh, avail. We'll close uh, now at this point, and we'll have a break for five minutes.